Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Joseph David Wolfgang Pitchler was born in Bremerton, Washington on February 14, 1987 and went by Joe. Joe began acting at the age of six and lived part-time in Los Angeles, California so that he could pursue acting jobs. After his first stint in a commercial for the Bond March, he traveled to Hollywood where he obtained numerous roles in TV shows, commercials, and movies, including 1996's The Fan, starring Robert De Niro, 1999's Varsity Blues, and the third and fourth Beethoven comedy films in 2000 and 2001. However, in 2002, his family insisted that Joe come home and take a break from acting, and that's exactly what he did. In 2005, he graduated from Bremerton High School and was making plans to return to California to restart his acting career once his braces were removed. However, he would never get the chance. On January 5, 2006, Joe hung out with several friends, playing cards, and drinking beer. Joe was allegedly in good spirits and was acting his usual self. However, by the end of the night, his mood changed. After the night ended, Joe drove his friends home, and then at 4.08 a.m., he called another friend he'd been with earlier and began sobbing uncontrollably. Joe, who had continued drinking, was asked by his friend what was wrong, but he said he didn't know. He then hung up the phone, saying he would call back in an hour, but he never did and has never been heard from since. Four days later, Joe's silver 2005 Toyota Corolla was found behind a restaurant near Wheaton Way and Sheridan Road in Bremerton, half a mile from Port Madison Narrows. One week after his vehicle was discovered, his family officially reported him missing. Police initially believed that after leaving his friend's house that night, he committed suicide by jumping off the Port Madison Narrows but search dogs were never able to pick up his scent, and he was never found, despite numerous searches. All of Joe's belongings, except his wallet and car keys, were left behind when he vanished, and his apartment was left unlocked with the lights on. On the night he was upset and called his friend, he recited a poem and told the friend to write it down. He stated he wished he had been a stronger brother to his younger brother and asked that his brother be given his belongings. While this implies he might have taken his own life, no hard evidence has ever been found to prove it. On the other hand, his loved ones believe he may have met with foul play because he allegedly wasn't depressed when he disappeared. They said while he was initially unhappy about leaving Hollywood, they said he eventually got used to being back in Bremerton. Two months before his disappearance, he had taken a full-time job as a telephone technician at Teletech. However, as of August 2023, Joe has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. (laughs) 
At the age of 35, Luz Raquel Padilla lived in Zapopan, Mexico with her 11-year-old son who was diagnosed with severe autism and epilepsy. Due to her son's medical condition, Luz found comfort in an organization named I Take Care of Mexico, a social media group comprised mostly of women who helped deal with threats and discrimination against disabled persons. Luz actively participated in this group by communicating and sharing photos of her son. She then began telling the group about how her neighbors were annoyed by her son's loud noises and began threatening her. They even sprayed graffiti on her building's staircase that read, I'm going to burn you alive and I'm going to kill you, Luz. She took photos of the graffiti and posted it on Twitter and tagged Jalisco government. She even went to the police and reported the threats, but without a witness or actual proof, there was nothing they could do. She then tweeted about being attacked with industrial chlorine and posted evidence of her neighbors bothering her about her son, but once again, no action was ever taken. On July 16th, Luz went to a public park by herself and was approached by three men and one woman. The men doused her with two gallons of alcohol and set her on fire before running away laughing. Luz was rushed to the hospital with burns over 90% of her body. Despite all the efforts to save her, Luz sadly passed away three days later on July 19, 2022 in a hospital in Guadalajara. A witness later came forward alleging that one of the men was the neighbor, Sergio Ismael, who had been threatening her. He's also being accused of spraying graffiti on the wall. Allegedly, he can become very aggressive when taking drugs. After becoming a suspect, he went to the police station of his own accord, but denied being one of the attackers and denied making threats against her. He also claimed he wasn't there when the crime was committed. Unfortunately, with no hard evidence, he was allowed to walk free. However, the prosecutor in the case, Luis Joaquin Mendez Ruiz, is working to get charges brought against him. Her murder has caused outrage in Mexico, both for its brutality and the fact that she had alerted the authorities months before the attack and they did nothing. There are allegedly 11 women murdered every day in Jalisco. As of August 2023, her murder is still under investigation, but remains unsolved. Ricky Jean Herridge was born on January 13, 1958, in Anson, Texas. In 1987, 29-year-old Ricky, who served in the U.S. Navy, was now living in the small town of Athens, Texas, and was the father to a daughter and stepson. Ricky was very well known around town, worked as a carpenter, and spent many weekends going to clubs and playing cards with friends. In February of 1987, five men and a woman jumped Ricky in Caney City, about 15 miles from Athens. The men were supposedly friends with a woman from Ricky's past, and they beat him up to the point where he was unable to go to work. Two weeks later, on a Saturday night, March 7, 1987, Ricky went out to Paula's Club on State Highway 19, south of Athens. He then called a ride to another club called the Ice House on Pinkerton and Prairieville. Around midnight, he left the club walking toward Larkin Street and was reportedly seen around 1 to 2 a.m. that same night in front of the pit grill. After that, he was never seen alive again. Around 1 p.m. on March 8th, a woman and a young man picking up cans 
discovered Ricky's body at the Walnut Creek Bridge on County Road 1500. Investigators determined he was shot multiple times before being thrown off the bridge and into the creek bed below. Over the years, investigators have received numerous leads and developed multiple theories, but nothing has ever led to an actual arrest in the case. It's also unclear if the men who beat up Ricky were involved in his murder. Ricky's sister, Virginia, has her suspicion about who she believes murdered her brother. Allegedly, the younger brother of a cop in town was dating Ricky's ex-wife, Deborah, at the time of the murder. Deborah and the man were supposedly driving around in a red truck on the night of Ricky's murder. The truck was then quickly sold on the day of Ricky's funeral before law enforcement ever had a chance to check it. Unfortunately, it's been almost 40 years and this case remains unsolved. Sean Campbell was born on January 29, 1973, and was best friends with Brian Benson, who was born on April 4, 1973. They grew up together in Warminster, Pennsylvania, and both graduated from William Tennant High School. In 1993, both men, now 20 years old, worked part-time at the local West Coast video store in the Rosemore Shopping Center on County Line Road. This location was within walking distance from their parents' home where they still resided. Sean had been at the video store for the past six years, while Brian was hired about six months earlier in the spring to early summer of 1993. Besides the video store, Brian had been attending Bucks County Community College, where he was studying video production but had decided to take a semester off. Sean, on the other hand, worked full-time at Sylvan's Pools in Abington. On the night of November 10, 1993, Brian's father, Gary, had stopped by the store around 9 p.m. to pick up some movies, but left soon after. Shortly after that, around 10 p.m., they were getting ready to close up the store when one or more assailants came in to rob the place. By the end of the robbery, both men would die from multiple stab wounds. Investigators only assumed there was more than one suspect, since both Sean and Brian were at least six feet tall and both physically fit. Also, since they were found with defensive wounds, it was clear they put up a good fight, but in the end, were sadly overpowered. After the murder, the suspects got away with $300 from the cash register. The next day, the store owner found the front door unlocked and ajar. Upon further investigations, he discovered Sean and Brian's bodies in the X-rated room in the rear of the store. The suspects had clearly come in before they were able to lock the door because police didn't have any signs of forced entry. Also, the murder weapon has never been recovered. Investigators also found that someone had cut the wire to a security camera aimed at the cash register. However, the security camera didn't work anyways until the store was locked up for the night. There was only one clue found at the scene, a cheap silver-colored stud earring that had most likely been ripped off during the struggle with the suspects. DNA was collected from tissue and blood that was still clinging to the earring, but it has never matched any suspects. Two years later, a jailhouse informant by the name of John Hall began calling Sean's family from prison. He claimed that a fellow inmate serving a life sentence confessed to the double murders. However, it was later determined that Hall made the story up. 
Also that same year, a partially rusted knife was also found behind the Rosemore Shopping Center, but never provided any evidence. At this point, it's been almost 30 years since Sean and Brian were murdered. However, as of 2023, no one has ever been arrested, and this case remains unsolved. Elena Maria Sol Carisi was born on July 26, 1970, in rural Salina San Marco in the region of Apulia in southeast Italy on November 29, 1970, to parents Albano Carisi and Romina Power. Yelena's parents are famous musicians and actors in Italy known as the countries Sonny and Cher. Yelena is also the granddaughter of American actor Tyrone Power and Mexican actress Linda Christian. In 1983, 13-year-old Yelena appeared alongside her parents in a film called Champagne in Paradiso. Several years later, in 1989, she served the role of Vanna White in the Italian version of Wheel of Fortune. Yelena aspired to become a novelist and later studied literature at King's College in London. In 1993, Yelena decided she wanted to travel the world alone with just a backpack and journal. After taking a break from her studies in London, she returned home to Italy and sold most of her belongings to fund her trip. She then set off for Central and North America. After touring around for a while, she met up with her parents, who were vacationing in New Orleans. Once the vacation was over, her parents returned to Italy, but Yelena decided to stay behind. She then ended up in Florida, but met two questionable men there. So after only a few days, she left Florida, telling her parents the men were trying to drug and kill her. After that, she traveled to Mexico and Belize before returning to New Orleans. She then began immersing herself in the French Cajun culture and was hanging out with drifters and musicians in Jackson Square. During her time here, she would sit and paint and take notes of the people she met, hoping to include the experiences in the novel she planned to write. Her family believes she began using drugs around this time. Her brother, thinking she was still in Belize, came to visit her on December 27th, but found she wasn't at home. After some investigating, he discovered that she had taken a bus to Mexico on December 26th. By December 31st, she had checked into the now-defunct Liddell Hotel at 749 St. Charles Avenue, five blocks from the French Quarter. Not even a week later, Yelena would vanish into thin air. Turns out Yelena had been sharing a hotel room with a 54-year-old street musician by the name of Alexander Masakila. Unfortunately, unbeknownst to Yelena, Masakila allegedly had a history of drug use and sexual violence against women. On January 31, 1994, Masakila was arrested in connection with Yelena's disappearance. When asked about their relationship, Masakila denied being romantic with her and claimed they slept in separate beds in the hotel room. He said he was interested in her that way, but she had denied his advances. On the other hand, Masakila claimed that Yelena had become obsessed with him to the point of calling him master. However, he denied knowing where she was, and without any solid evidence, they were forced to release him. Yelena was last seen around the French Quarter on January 6, 1994, and her parents last spoke with her on New Year's Eve. 
On January 18th, she was officially reported missing. Soon after, her parents flew back to New Orleans to help search for her. When investigators checked her hotel room, they found all her belongings, including her passport, backpack, clothing, camera, luggage, and notebooks were left behind. After her disappearance, Masakila showed Yelena's passport to the staff of the Liddell and attempted to use her traveler's checks to pay the bill for their room. However, since the checks were unsigned, the hotel refused the payment and evicted Masakila. On January 30th, a security guard at the Audubon Aquarium of the Americas reported that on January 6th, around 11.30 p.m., while on patrol around Waldenburg Park, located on the west bank of the Mississippi River, he saw a blonde woman sitting on the pier. He described her as a very attractive blonde woman between the ages of 18 and 24. He said she was wearing a jacket and a floral dress that came down just below her knees. When he informed her that she couldn't be in the park after hours, she allegedly responded, it doesn't matter, I belong to the river. And I was explaining to her that the park was closed and that she had to come on this side, the, the rails in the park, she couldn't sit out there. He said she then jumped into the Mississippi River and began swimming toward the center. However, she began struggling and called out for help. Start out, help! And she went down, help! She went down a third time, and that was the last we seen her. Sadly, as a boat passed, it created a wake, causing the woman to go under the water and never reemerge. Police boats and helicopters spent hours searching for the woman, but she was never found. While the woman matches Yelena's description, her identity has never been confirmed, and the body was never recovered. In 1996, two years after Yelena vanished, a call came through from an unidentified caller claiming that Yelena was still alive. However, the caller has never been verified, and it never led to Yelena's whereabouts. In January 2013, Albano requested his missing daughter be declared dead, and by December 2014, his request was granted. Her mother, Romina, on the other hand, believes her daughter is still alive. However, as of August 2023, Yelena has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.